0: Presented by the 910 Comedy Podcast Network, and we are back. It's Dead Girls Talking. I'm Minda. I'm Jenna, and we are in December. I can't even believe it, really. And we have a very special guest this evening. Joining us is Bruce Goldfarb, the man, the
1: myth, the legend. And uh, the executive assistant to the chief medical officer in Baltimore, and the author of 18 Tiny Deaths, a book about murder dollhouses.
2: (laughs) Dollhouses of Death.
1: Dollhouses of Death is going to be my next band name. So, Bruce, can you tell us, this is an extremely hard thing to describe to people who have not seen the, the name of the exhibit. It's called The Nutshell Studies, and they are essentially incredibly intricate models of crime scenes i'm not doing it justice
2: well no i mean they they the 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 collection is known as the nutshell studies of unexplained death and there are a series of dioramas there's 18 of them that are in baltimore uh and they were made in the mid-1940s for the purpose of training police officers in the skills of crime scene observation uh, they're not all Uh, crimes, actually, I mean, the the death scenes, they're uh, all different manners of death, some are natural causes, accidents, suicides, homicides. Um, And so um, that's what they are. And and so um, they sort of have a life of their own. And um, there's been a coffee table book and a documentary and um, uh, a couple collections of poems, and and they had their first and only public exhibition a couple years ago at the Smithsonian at the Redwood Gallery um, uh, in Washington.
1: Now, I became aware that these things existed um, because of an article that appeared on Atlas Obscura, which is um, essentially a a website for people who like strange travel. And I'm a museum enthusiast. I like all the weird museums. So I planned a trip to Baltimore from North Carolina um, for the express purpose of seeing the nutshell studies. But that was back before I had any forensics training. Um, My interest in it was really just because they were miniatures. They were (laughs) fascinatingly tiny. And it was just kind of this marriage of like cute and macabre that I think is a lot of people's initial draw. And uh, the night before I was scheduled to come take the tour, they were housed at the medical examiner's office, which was kind of a plot twist. I was sitting at Fells Point eating at Bertha's Muscles, which I really hope survived the pandemic because that was awesome. And I wound up next to a retired uh, police detective who started filling me in on uh, some of the details of what goes on at the OCME's office. And he tells me, while you're in town, you should really try to see an autopsy.
0: Did you get to see one? I did. you, did I you just like, hand them out? Up in yeah, the I was
1: like, there is absolutely no way. They're just going to, like, I was, I was flattered that they were letting me get in to see the nutshell studies. Um, but Bruce was kind enough to slip me on a full tour of the medical examiner's office with a group of students that were visiting from, um, I wish I could remember what university, but I got to see the whole thing. And I will tell anybody who will listen about all of it to this day. It was so cool.
2: It, it, it honestly is. And I'm not encouraging people. In fact, I'm actually discouraging people. But it is the best field trip ever.
0: You know our listener base, clearly. That's our folks. So tell us a little bit about the mother of forensics, who you write about in your book.
2: Yeah, an interesting person. I'm glad you asked. Uh, Francis... I'm really good at this job. <laughs> uh, Francis Glissner Lee uh, was a uh, child of Gilded Age, Chicago, uh, grew up in a very wealthy family and uh, she was born in 1878 and a- at that time there weren't a lot of career paths for women right. um uh, particularly somebody of that sort of socioeconomic status uh, a woman might get a job you know cleaning or clerical work but in terms of a you know professional career she wasn't expected to have a career um and uh, so she did society lady things and uh, you know went to receptions and supported the arts her family was very much into um the uh the cultural events the, particularly the Chicago symphony orchestra and the art institute um and um it really wasn't until uh, middle age that she got um, introduced to this wh- what was then called legal medicine now we call it forensic medicine But uh, she is, you know, the only woman she's on. She's the only woman to make a major contribution to the field of forensic science. Uh, All the major developments, uh, fingerprinting, forensic toxicology, uh, hair and fiber evidence. These are all developed by men mainly because women didn't have an opportunity to work in the area. Um, But uh, she is the, the person pretty much single-handedly responsible for making sure that forensic medicine was established in the United States. And she used her her fortune and the, the force of her personality to, to get this achieved.
0: I love her already.
1: So what did crime scene investigation look like before this happened? Let's say you find a body. What unfolds?
2: Well, first of all, um, well, I mean, it's really, uh, you know, since since the country was established as a colony, uh, when, when the Northern Europeans colonized uh, America, they brought over English common law with them. And uh, we're on the coroner system. And in fact, about half the country is still on the coroner system. But the coroner system is this weird holdover from uh, medieval England. It dates from around the 1300s and it's basically crowdsourcing death investigation you get a, a coroner's inquest a jury of people they were required to look at the body now back in the middle ages uh, the the inquest jury consisted only of adult men um and by adult that was over the age of 13 13 year older so uh, and they were of course illiterate mostly farmers and, and it would be of these local people so whatever that town was and so the people who served on the inquest jury may have been related to the person who died or have been a witness to the event or you know a family member but nonetheless uh, the, that's what the law required them to do and they had to look at the body it's called uh supervisium corporis uh and you know what is a teenage farmer boy gonna know you know with no medical training no training to tell from looking at a dead body. But nonetheless, that's what they do. And then they vote. Who thinks it's an accident? Who thinks it's an act of God? And it's not terribly reliable. So before the mid-20th century, honestly, that was from day one up until, you know, um, Boston, Massachusetts had the first medical examiner's office where you had a doctor in charge uh, in 1877. So from day one to 1877, it was strictly in the coroner system um but uh, prior to the mid 20th century there was no training for police officers um uh, not surprisingly a lot of these guys uh, they didn't have high school diplomas uh you didn't have to be real smart to be a cop they liked uh, cops were valued for being big really? exactly big yeah. strong guys who could wrestle somebody go out and break up a fight and so you didn't have to have critical thinking skills you didn't have to have interviewing skills if you could beat a confession out of somebody, uh, which is what they did. The third easy th- enough. <laughs> yeah, exact. You know, sure. Um, so you know, she undertook. Um, she's the one who uh, undertook to train the police officers in modern death investigation, scientific based death she, investigation.
0: Did she? Did she run into a lot of um, kickback any walls? You know, people are like, no female person we need this 12 year old farm boy his opinion is way more valuable than what you've got going on adult woman
2: yes it was a struggle first of all you have to appreciate that she didn't even get involved in it she did she was her life changed when she was middle-aged in 1929 when she was she was um uh, 52 years old she was all oh, well in the middle age before she even got involved in this so everything she did was in the last decade's the last really 15 years of her life, um, but um, uh, it, it was a terrible and surprisingly not of all the things that she was up against, and there were many many obstacles. Um, she she had no formal training. Uh, she had a lot of medical problems. She was an elderly person with a whole host of of issues. Um, she was a woman in a in a man's world, um, but of all of these things. The the one that that was the most, um, the one that was the greatest obstacle was the lack of a formal credential, really. Uh, although she does she did encounter problems, uh, you know, for all kinds of things for being, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it was a traditionally man's world. But I tell you, uh, being a millionaire is a, a great way to get people to pay attention to you. It opens yeah. doors. And that's all it does is open the door. You still have to know what you're talking about, and uh, so
0: she's like a very smart Kardashian of her day. She was just such a foil to that world of
1: muscling your way through problems. Just the attention to detail is what makes these so magnificent. They I don't want to like wax poetic. Yeah, too hard about it because we have Bruce here, but it's their scale models, um, that are so like even the labels on that like if it's some of them that are house scenes, um, cans of soup in the miniature kitchen, are to perfect scale with everything, and there I I think I read somewhere that the the models actually cost more than the
2: house. Yeah, she she um, I mean people can uh, google if you google nutshell studies uh, there's a whole book uh, by corinne botts called the nutshell studies of unexplained death with uh, really wonderful uh, images i have an instagram um that's 18 tiny deaths all spelled out where i'm i'm showing um detail shots and things that aren't visible to the public um but uh, they're all in scale of one inch to one foot and, and they are really exquisitely detailed um a lot of them are they're handcrafted there are some purchased items there's some uh place settings and there are some plastic pieces but all the fabric all the uh, uh the figurines um and all the detail work was done in Francis Quesnerly's own hand her skill her background uh was in the needlework so all the knitting sewing all the upholstery all anything having to do with fabric That's all Francis Glessner Lee, but she also did the blood spatter on the walls. She she spent just an unbelievable fortune, and and each one cost thousands to produce.
0: Did she have children? Did she have a family? Like, did she have an estate to carry on?
2: She did, she had three children. Um, and uh, there's a, a, a bunch of descendants, there are dozens of them all over the place. Uh, several some of them are still in the area. I've met many of them. Um, they are all amazingly uh, talented people. Really? You know, <laughs> yeah, I was are, wondering, they, one's a you know, marine biologist, they've gone into politics. Her son was a, a very early um, uh, air, uh, air aircraft designer. Um, just, just amazing stuff that they all that they've achieved. Um, but none of them went into law enforcement or forensic medicine.
0: Yeah, that was my next question. You <laughs> beat me Absolutely. to it, Bruce. <laughs> no. How did the first one get made?
2: The first diorama. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the first one is well. First of all, okay. She had a people want to know, you know, what they're all based on and everything. She's working from a checklist of different kinds of things she wanted to illustrate she she wanted to show a hanging she wanted to show shooting she wanted to show she wanted to do a drowning she wanted to do a car crash Uh, but because they're made during world war ii there were material shortages there were no toy cars made during world war ii because of the steel and the rubber Uh, so she never was able to do a car crash so um, you know she had this idea and there were cases in which she had access to information they're not Literal depictions of actual scenes. These are based on. Uh, so sort the of barn is the first one, um, and it's a guy hanging from a rope inside a barn. The case that that's based on uh, the guy hung himself in a cellar. So she changed the location from a cellar to a barn, but it's those sort of superficial details that you changed. The facts of the death are all are all true, and um, she had her for the barn in particular. She had her. Uh, a a handyman who did work around her estate um, make her this a you know a she designed it a you know a a barn and the wood which is really absolutely beautiful aged wood um, came from a barn that was on her property and she had her handyman uh, cut off like a 12th of the inch of the aged surface and then glue the boards together to make the planks and then build the whole model. It's just an outrageous complexity to her methods, but she um, she was obsessive and she spared no expense.
0: So when she started doing this, how quickly did her scenarios and her achievements start to change the face of forensics during that time or law enforcement? Sorry guys.
2: It's okay. Well, it 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 When she, Boston had the first medical examiner's office in 1877. When she got involved in 1929, she started giving money to Harvard in 1931. By that time, in that, what is that? A 60 year period, 50 year period? uh, The medical examiner system had expanded from Boston to two other cities. New York City and Newark, New Jersey. That's as far as it has spread. When she got involved in 1931, um, by um, 19, by the end of that decade, um, there may have been, well, Maryland was 1939. Um, It's been a real glacial, really, really slow, painfully slow. Um, And still to this day, only only half the country is covered by medical examiners who still have so it was a very very slow and a very political because the coroner has historically been a, a a a politician and it's a local official at the county level so people are reluctant to give up that authority we got this new position a medical examiner he's a doctor he'll take care of all this stuff and you know it's like We've always done it this way. You know, what's wrong with what we're, the way we're doing it? Um, a lot but, of
1: 13-year-old farm boys out of work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there is a lot of resistance from all corners. From, um, it was, a, the whole thing was a struggle to uh, convince Harvard to do it, the need for it, to, uh, she spent her life lobbying, as amazing as the dioramas are. And they are extraordinary, these 18 nutshells. It's really only an asterisk into what she did with her entire life, what she was able to achieve. But she honestly had this amazing force of personality and money to get what she wanted done. Uh, and and uh, if it were not for her, we wouldn't be where we are today.
0: And nobody knows her.
2: I know, I know her. You know her. And now because you know, of you,
0: because of Bruce. are going to know her
2: now. Well, yeah, because that was her choice. Actually, that was by her choosing. Um, she, there, there were early on, she began this homicide seminar in 1945, almost immediately. Uh, the reporters got word of it. There were coverage in local papers in Boston. She got in a Saturday evening post, um, uh, popular mechanics, uh, life magazine did a photo feature, uh, and these stories and they, they kept, there was the same story over and over, uh, that, you know, here's this this uh, wealthy grandmother who makes these creepy doll houses that are used for a good purpose. But that was, you know, the sort of caricature um, that was made of her and um, she got tired of it. Uh, and, and she actually pitched an idea to Metro Goldwyn Mayer to do a, a feature film in the late 1940s. Uh, and um, she, the MGM was intrigued and because uh, there there had been there had never been a movie about a medical examiner about forensic science legal medicine now we call it forensic medicine but there had never been there have been crime stories murder mysteries going back to poe uh, you know but this is a whole new angle a whole new wrinkle on an old uh, on an old story so uh they they hired a writer to write a draft of uh, a treatment of this film they were calling murder at harvard and the very first uh treatment focused on Francis Glesner Lee and the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. And the film opened up at Harvard and it zooms in on Nutshell Studies. And here's this elderly woman sitting at the table. And then there's a flashback to the case that it's based on and telling the whole story of the Department of Legal Medicine. And she said, take me out of it. It's not about me. I don't want to be in the movie at all. You should base it on a real story. And she suggested that they base it on a case of a young woman named Irene Perry, uh, she was 22 23 years old murdered in Cape Cod um, and so uh, this was a case that Alan Moritz uh, who had, at Harvard had investigated and so they they did they based this movie um, on a real case they changed the names to protect the innocent uh, it uh, it used uh, uh, forensic anthropology body identification ballistics uh forensic photography and all these brand new technologies uh, from the headlines And Harvard objected to the name Murder at Harvard, so they changed the title to Mystery Street, which was released in 1950, stars Ricardo Montalban, Um, and it is an absolute hoot. It is the first forensic science procedural drama, the forerunner of Quincy, CSI, your show, the most popular genre in streaming, books, film, you name it.
0: Yeah, I was just about to invoke CSI. (laughs) Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So this this everything we know of, literally, in a in a crime scene investigation, whether it's in real life or on popular culture, that's all because of Frances Klesner lee and what she did at Harvard. And it was her choice that she remain remain anonymous and in the background.
1: Now she never pursued a formal degree, did she?
2: She did not.
1: Why did she choose not to? Was there something barring her from doing that?
2: Yes, there was, as a matter of fact. She she had one sibling, George, um, and the two of them were homeschooled. They were tutored by the finest educators that money could buy, and they were just given an extraordinary education in the natural sciences, mathematics, uh, languages, music, dance. Uh, Francis was uh, fluent in French and German and uh, uh, Italian and could read and write Latin. Uh, Just amazing, amazing. Um, So uh, the the Glezners were her brother, George, got to go to Harvard uh, University, he was went to the business school, they were a Harvard family, Uh, the family supported Harvard, the architect that designed she her husband Blewitt Lee was an attorney. Uh, he was a Harvard graduate. Uh, the designer of the architect of their of their house, H. H. Richardson, was a Harvard graduate. They were a Harvard family. So um, she, there was only one thing that she wanted was to go to Harvard, and Harvard didn't admit women until 1945. Mm. So it was Harvard or nothing. And uh, if you if you read about her online, there's this meme going around, this myth That her parents forbid her from going to college is absolutely not true, not true at all.
0: Just had to be Harvard.
2: Harvard or nothing. Yep.
0: Harvard or bust. But she did pretty good.
2: She did all right. She could have have done whatever she wanted to. She had her parents are very supportive. She was strong-willed. If she wanted to go to college, it it would have happened. Uh, She could have even gone to medical school.
0: What kind of lawyer was her husband? Was he a criminal lawyer? or like?
2: No, actually a corporate lawyer. His oh. name is Blewett Lee. Um, his father was a famous Confederate general. Her, his dad um, uh, was the his father was the guy who went to Fort Sumter and ordered them to surrender and when they didn't he ordered the first shot that began the Civil War. Wow. That's, that's yeah. That that's Francis Glissner Lee's father-in-law. So um, he he's a fairly traditional guy at the time. Uh, when he was before he met um, Francis, when he was a young lawyer and he lived in Atlanta, he was approached by a uh, a guy to. Uh, form of articles of incorporation for a company to make a, a, a product, uh, a tonic. Uh, Isaac Handler, I went to him, and um, he offered him either cash or shares of the company, and Blewett Lee tasted this uh, tonic and thought it was terrible, and it insisted on cash. And that was the, the Coca-Cola Corporation. <laughs> I know, I know. So uh, that's, that's family lore, but yeah, that's true, supposedly. Uh, but he ended up actually after uh, his divorce with Francis, which was around like 1914, something like that. Um, they, uh, he was a pioneering expert in aviation law. Aviation was brand new at the time. And he sort of, he realized that this is going to be a thing and that there are going to be legal implications to it. And so he adapted maritime law to the aviation industry and, I uh, was a very early expert in aviation law.
1: Now are we are we attributing this divorce to um her commitment to
0: forensic Every, science? Everybody gets a burner marriage, Jenny. <laughs> you, it, Some of you us know, get more than one.
2: That that's true. Um, I in, until I began this project, I was prepared to dislike. Bluett Lee. It is instinct. I, something must have happened. I always assumed something must have happened. Um, I, I, but what I learned was he was quite a nice guy. Um, actually, his in-laws, the Glessner family, adored him. Absolutely loved him. Loved his dad. They got along great. He was a doting father. Um, I he, Bluett Lee was an only child. Francis was a uh, the only daughter of a very wealthy family, and she was quite demanding. I, I think that they were both, neither of them were accustomed to compromise, and I think that, uh, honestly, Francis had expectations beyond what Lewitt could afford. He was really not um, they had to depend on money from her family because his, his salary alone wouldn't wouldn't yeah. sustain her in the style to which she was accustomed.
0: She had champagne tastes on the old beer budget. I say down here, <laughs> She was always down in the basement building her murder dioramas.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah Thinking
1: murder thoughts. Bed. Yeah.
2: The poor issues. There were, and, and honestly, I mean, you know, in, in the book, uh, you know, I couldn't. I, I had to. I couldn't really was reluctant to assign like a label to her, you know, she seems obsessive. Um, She did work in bursts of energy. Uh, I can't really say that she was bipolar or whatever, had periods of mania, but uh, you know, people around her said that she would, once she had an idea, she would work all day and then into the night and just, you know, go on and on and on until she was done. And, And her bursts of creative energy did annoy Blewett. I mean, it was, I that's, think that's me
0: her. with everybody around me. you were exactly. Well, I respect that in a person. She got stuff done.
2: She got stuff done. As I was gonna say, she she achieved things. She really did. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.
1: How how did people respond to them um at the time?
2: Uh, actually, the 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 response was quite favorable. Um she designed them for men. She designed them for police officers, and it was important to her that they not be perceived as toys. And so that was part of the reason why she was so overboard with the detail. They're very realistic, uh, and all this minutiae and, and very uh, uh, lifelike um, was to immerse a person into a world. She, they really are 1940s virtual reality, and she never suspe- she never used the word suspend disbelief. But she wanted the viewer to get absorbed into this miniature world. And so, um, you know, she designed them with that in mind. uh, And uh, she did these sort of uh, focus groups uh, with police officers and showed them to them. And what do you think? And got feedback from them. And and really, from the beginning, they were um, did something that no other medium could do. And they really were, you know, valuable as as teaching tools as a instructional medium. So um, they were never, they were never dismissed. Everybody saw value in them.
1: So has the, has the response changed now? What do people typically, I'm sure you've seen a lot of people see them for the first time. What are, what are some things that you hear over and over?
2: Well, I mean, yeah, they, they have, you know, as I said, they have a life of their own and they honestly attract people from all over all over uh, i've had people come literally from around the world from from new zealand uh from the uk i've i've had more than one person who came directly from the airport i've had people tell me you know they just flew into bwi and they're stopping at the ocme before they check into their hotel uh because they that's why they're here is the, to see the dioramas uh, so it's not surprising that you would drive up uh, to to see them because it's that's what people do, um, and um, they they have a way of mesmerizing people. Some people get sort of wrapped up in them, and, and I saw this with the folks from the Smithsonian when they're doing the the uh, conservation on them. Uh, people feel a not not as not propriety, but they feel a connection with them. Um, and, and really vested in them far beyond, I think, you know, with their artifacts, you know, uh, just that's all they really are, just little dioramas. But uh, people have projected their own ideas onto them so much that they just represent so many things to different people. Um, I don't know. It's beyond me
0: say so this she became into popularity a little bit after the rise of spiritualism in this country you know in like 40 50 years after that yeah i was wondering because there's a huge we know a lot of people that this is such a culture for them you know not the crime scene thing just they're so into this part of it like just the oddities aspect of it so back when she was making it though The layperson couldn't see them, right? It was just for law enforcement,
2: right? Yes,
0: I can. I I bet people were clamoring, though.
2: Well, I mean, she 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 did not make them for exhibition, right? Quite explicit about that. They're not for exhibition.
1: It's a like it's a piece of art, but also it's not. It's meant to be viewed from all vantage points. She doesn't choose your perspective. You get to walk around and look inside, and it's kind of a it's a it's a mystery to be
0: solved. Even somebody with no formal training, you see it, and that's what you want to do. But it's like the marriage of art and science, right? It's Mm -hmm. because that's how my my life, the mortuary science is the same.
2: Yes. And and there's there's other areas it's It's art in the service of science. And, and there are other examples of this: medical illustration. I just love medical illustration. i oh, yes, yes, program it yes. at, at uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, but it's a, it's a great example of art in the service of science, and that's what first attracted me uh, as, as, uh, as pieces of art. Um, but you know, the thing she, I don't, she never really intended them to be uh, display. Yeah. she didn't she wasn't creating art. People ask you know her notes with the cases that she based them on and all these things. and she wasn't like doing this for posterity. I'm creating this this thing. The materials that she used and the sorts of questions that people would ask about art can't be answered. When were they made? you know what's it made out of? Um so she was not creating art, and she didn't keep extensive notes about her work.
0: She did not keep extensive
2: notes no, wow.
1: When did they first become available to the public?
2: Well, they never really were. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they they're the dioramas are in sort of a gray area, uh, and they're they're um, they're on loan to the Maryland Medical Legal Foundation, which is a private nonprofit. Uh, they happen to be housed at the medical examiner's office because that's where the homicide seminar is. So the medical examiner's office is it's a public building in a way. I mean, it is a government building, uh, but it's not freely open to the public. So it, it really is by, I mean, I went to go see them in the 1990s when, uh, the guy I had to ask was Jerry D. Jerry D. Chehowitz who is the keeper of the nutshell state secret. So, you know, I did it in the 1990s. Um, so I I guess they were they were open to the public then if you knew how to get in touch with the right person to arrange a visit.
0: It's like and, a it's like a club where you knock on the door like a speakeasy.
2: It is like that, and you know honestly I, I like Atlas Obscura uh, Dylan Thuris by the way who's the co-founder of Atlas Obscura and he's visited a couple of times he's a friend. He just did a two-part. Um, we have also this thing, which I think I showed you, Jenna, the, the uh, Scarpetta house where they do the, the mock-ups of these hangings and shootings. And we have people wearing makeup to simulate wounds. And so he did a two-part uh, podcast about being a playing dead for the OCME. Uh, but, I mean, it, that those sorts of things have really caused them to blow up. And I realized that they have their own audience and people – I I can't deny that they have value as art and, and that they're worthy of being appreciated as art. So I've, you know, I've tried to make them as accessible as possible, but it's, it's not a museum. And I, the taxpayers of Maryland, they don't pay my salary to be hanging out and being a museum guide. You know, I have to do stuff. I have to keep track of subpoenas. And, you know, so that's what my job is. So it really is, and it has to be, you know, as as possible.
0: So that's the nature of your role at the OCME.
2: Right. I'm the executive assistant. Yeah. I'm the chief's girl. I work in the chief's office for the chief. And, um, yeah, so any, I do a variety of things. I'm the public information officer. Um, I keep track of all the subpoenas that the office gets. I, um, Things that get escalated, you know, in customer service, when things are out of ordinary and people mm-hmm. are upset or angry or something, and, and they demand that they want to talk to the manager, <laughs> uh, I get the Karens, uh, which no. I, I don't want to say it like that, because these are people who are going through the, the grieving, mm-hmm. they're angry, uh, you, yeah. know, they're all, you know, it's, it's a, I, it's understandable. You know, there, there are these things that, that happen.
0: You're seeing uh, everybody on their worst day.
2: Exactly. Right. Right. Yep. So, and, and the nutshells has happened to be there. I, I the reason why, <laughs> I, honestly, the, the reason I'm the only one willing to take the time to do stuff like this and to spend, to let people come in, photograph them, look at them, the, do the tours. That's one of the things I do is the tours of presentation. So.
1: It's true that was it was so much more than I expected because it's not a it's you not an autopsy out of it destination it's a it's a working medical examiner's office it's a place where really heavy things are going on and it it was kind of a some strange emotions to, to be there for that and walk past those things, you know, people getting the worst news of their life. And then you're there for, so it's, I mean, it's an appropriate place for them to be housed and like, it's, it's so perfect. And also I can understand how that makes your day interesting.
2: Every day is interesting.
0: Yeah. That would be weird though. Like if you're checking out the exhibit and then there's someone over there dealing with a murder situation
1: like can you imagine like the medical examiner's office in Raleigh with it's like such an austere place
0: to have <laughs> no, anything I like- can't I cannot even imagine yeah. him having a Christmas tree like <laughs> this is like the ultimate Christmas tree display People what was your in.
1: reaction when you first saw him in 1999 like are you are you in your position that you're in now for the love of the nutshell studies or did it just work out that way
2: yeah, well, I, they, they, they are ultimately responsible for me getting the job indirectly. And, I mean, everything and the book and all that. I mean, I, I first, it was 1992 when I first uh, wrote about them for the weekly newspaper, the American Medical Association, American Medical News. And uh, it was and that's what caught my eye was uh, that they're, they're pieces of art and american medical news at the time they paid really well and this was way back then i think it was like a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars for feature stories about doctors with weird and interesting hobbies so i, I wrote about uh, a gang uh, a motorcycle gang of doctors uh, and a doctor who studied uh, ancient uh, egyptian uh, the manuscripts with Potare. anyways so and i heard about this and I, that's cool i was right about it and it's just sort of you know one and done and and that was it and um, it, it kept coming back because people would want me to arrange a visit, and I, you know, like Jenna, and I would call up and kind of see the nutshells, and I'd be there at the medical examiner's office over and over every, you know, once a year, a couple of years, so they knew me by face, and I knew people, I knew about it, and I knew, you know, folks who worked there, but it wasn't until um, 2012 I was committing journalism. And in 2012, I was uh, writing for uh, a network of hyperlocal news websites that were owned by Huffington Post, a- America Online, called Patch. Uh, and uh, in in my little, it was hyperlocal, so I was doing our community. And in my community uh, was the, a guy who, on the community association, was the director of IT at, at the medical examiner's office. And they had this brand new building, state-of-the-art facility, opened in 2010. And it was just spanking new and all this cool stuff and everything. So I, I asked him to arrange a visit for us because I knew they had the dioramas. And about a dozen of us editors went on this tour. And as we're in the Scarpetta house, the training facility, Mike mentioned we have this new position for the chief and an assistant, an executive assistant. Uh, it would be a public information officer. We're looking for somebody with a medical background. Uh, who uh, you know has some media background, and it was just so obviously clearly written for me. I mean, that was that was my job.
0: And wait, I'm sorry, I must have missed it. What was your medical background?
2: Oh, I'm sorry i I, I was an EMT. I was a paramedic before. A paramedic. I was okay, yeah. Way, way back, that was my first life. Yeah.
0: They're so like, so, we need somebody that can write something and is not afraid of blood.
2: Exactly. That's right. So, I saw
0: it and I liked it so much. I went back
1: to school. Okay.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, and I mean, you're doing, you did the, you did forensic photography, right?
1: I did. I mean, they're, they're incredibly compelling things. Just the fact that something like that exists and Frances Glessner Lee's story of uh, just a, just a late in life career change. I love it. I, I'm in I love it. Yeah. She gives,
2: totally. she gives me hope. You yeah. Know? <laughs> well, you, us you too. Know? Yeah, at any age, you can still do all sorts of things. Now, what's the connection, Jenna, between your visit? Was it your visit at the OCME that gave you the idea of maybe doing something along these lines, or
1: it was it was that partially in the Scarpetta house, the the simulated wound um, training tool. I mean, you and gave her an that... autopsy,
0: Bruce. <laughs> Threw that in like a stocking at Christmas. She loves that stuff. Everybody reacts differently to that.
1: That was I, I as heavy of a thing as that is the the task of getting to see people see it for the first time would be cuz there's just such a range of uh <laughs> of reactions to that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, it's it, it's it's really surreal. People think that um it's a it's a movie set that it all that it looks fake. Um, and I get that question all the time, you know, is that, is that real? You know, why would you talking about
0: the autopsy, like that human on the table? What is this? The moon
2: landing? Well, i mean, the rooms, the autopsy room. I don't know where it is down there, but the the autopsy room is this huge, massive open space. It's 50 feet long, 30 feet wide, two stories tall, and the ceiling is absolutely covered in light. So it's extremely bright. It looks like a movie set. And, um,
0: Sounds like you know, and it just,
2: it, it is, it's really weird. It's just, um, it's extraordinary. And so people, you know, I hear that a lot people, they say, is that real? Like, why would we have fake bodies and just set this up just to, you know, we're a working in forensic medical center. These It
0: would be some, more expensive to get a fake body. <laughs>
2: exactly. Where would you get that realistic? Yeah. It was just cheaper just to use a real body.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. The OCME is such a tough, like it's a tough place to be, you know, like you got to be a special person to be there day in and day out.
2: It's uh, everybody there that, um, you know, and I'm sure it's true down there that, you know, these doctors have 13 years of training with the medical school and everything before the first day in the job. Uh, The forensic investigators, you have to have experience in order to apply. You have to have major trauma experience everybody works hard to get to that point and they want to be there. People it's, it's, the work is unpleasant. How can you do this? But you know, everybody I know that I I work with, they they choose to do this and there's nowhere else they'd rather be.
1: There no one's in it for the money.
2: No, you're not going to get rich as a state employee.
0: Um, Here we have, so. Raleigh, ROCME, they have a ton of cases. We have a huge rise in the fentanyl situation. Yes. Yeah, you guys gotten that too. But I heard that where you're at in Baltimore is extremely rough. <laughs> it's the city Raleigh's that, very
1: sleepy compared to Baltimore. Yeah,
0: that's what I was gonna kind of say. But you see a lot. I bet you see a lot more stuff than we do.
2: Um, I, I I suppose we do. You know, each uh, there's what three hundred or so homicides in in Baltimore. Um, statewide is I don't know five hundred six hundred something like that, but because uh, we are a statewide agency, and uh, yeah, the Baltimore Washington area is you know it has its issues. Yeah,
0: I heard John Waters call it the city that bleeds once.
2: It, it this is it's it's true. It, I know I it's cities have their issues and, and we have our share. We have statewide, uh, Justin, since like two thousand and fourteen, the fentanyl. Is uh, it's over 2,000 additional deaths a year. Yeah. 2,000 a year just yeah. from the opiates.
0: So with your background in the paramedic situation that you had going on, did that adequately prepare you for this position?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay,
0: so you were good to go. You're like, bring it on. Well, I'm
2: Bruce. My very first job, I was an EMT. I, I got my training in Memphis, Tennessee. I didn't grow up there. Oh. As a long story. But I was, a, I was an EMT in Memphis. The, uh, and the company that I worked for, they actually had a contract with the city of Memphis. They called it a corpse removal contract, but they got $25 a body to, for picking up a body or wherever from the car crash or a fire and then taking it to uh, be pronounced dead and to the Shelby County Morgue, which was in the city hospital. Uh, the Shelby County Morgue, by the way, uh, the medical examiner in Memphis was Jerry Francisco who did the autopsy on Elvis I bought my first car from uh, Jerry Francisco, uh, a, a postal vehicle. Um, but um, so that, that was my first autopsy I saw was in Jerry Francisco's Morgan in, in, in Memphis. The Elvis and
0: details. The, the, Every time we peel a layer off of you, you get more interesting, Bruce. Like you got all this stuff going on. Where have you been keeping him, Jenna? I'm two so years into the show. He's a fascinating guy. Absolutely.
2: I, I haven't even gotten with yet. I, you know, I, yeah.
0: I Do it right now on the air. <laughs> you've been you've been in
1: the trenches long enough to see the science change quite a bit. Um, I mean, it's changing all the time and fast. But the the face of forensics looks pretty different today.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of I mean, obviously, you know, things like DNA, uh, the imaging. You know, there's things in even in uh, molecular medicine. Yeah, fingerprinting yeah i guess i haven't really thought about it but you're right there have been some uh, quite a bit of changes that uh, you know it's it's not something that you see um we, well no i'll correct myself there, there are things that we're doing for example um one of the things that the the previous chief uh, dr fowler was doing was uh, uh 3d printing skulls oh, um it cool. is cool it's very cool because they cool. they take the data from the ct um oh, yeah uh, the the funny thing is that a CT image is accepted as evidence in a courtroom, even though a CT doesn't actually exist in, in real space. It's only ones and zeros on a hard drive. It's just data. Mm. Um, yet that's accepted as evidence. A- and they have shown that the CT is a one to one comparison to the actual skull. So they take the CT output, they put it right into the printer, and they print the 3D skull so you that can is see awesome. the doctors, and you can show it to a jury. Look, there it is. Um, and um, uh, so that's that's what they're doing, and it's been used in a couple uh, uh, trials so far. Does and anybody
0: challenge that?
2: Not to my knowledge. Um, wow. It has been. It, I, I believe it has been used at least once. One of the doctors, I believe, has introduced and, and taken it into court. That's phenomenal. That's yeah. so cool.
1: If we could ever figure out noses, noses, noses continue to bedevil us. You can, it's, it's very hard to guess the shape.
0: I built a nose too.
2: That's true. <laughs> and uh, nose and ears, because it's cartilage, soft, to... Uh, yeah, right. right. Yep.
1: <laughs> shot in the dark. If you shot. had to, um, just as a thought experiment, do you think we would have gotten here eventually without Francis Klesnerly? Lee? Do you think it would have taken a lot longer?
2: Yeah, without a doubt, um, I there, there was that trend. There was a trend towards, you know, a a medical model, science based type death investigation. Um, it may have sooner or later. There, there, you know, there was in New York City. Um, they were beginning. Francis gave a bunch of money. She established at Harvard the first. Uh, Uh, academic program in uh, forensic medicine in in a medical school she basically established the whole field of practice from the ground up Uh, there was a competing program at New York University in New York City that came like within a year or two so these things probably would have emerged but um, without her really without her lobbying to change state laws there are so many things that had to be done Uh, she called it the three-legged stool you had to uh train medical examiners you have to reform the laws to abolish the corners and have medical examiners and you need to educate the police because they are the ones who are at the, the the scene of the death and so what they do in those first moments can make or break a case and change the trajectory of an investigation so she was really the only one although people were doing bits of it she was the one who was pushing you have to do all these things and so it, with, without a doubt, we wouldn't be where we are now, and I can pretty much guarantee you wouldn't be having this podcast now because there wouldn't be doing this whole thing with raising public awareness right. of forensic science um, were it not for Francis Glessner Lee.
0: When you talk I mean, about changing the law, that exi- like that totally makes sense. When you said everything moved at a glacial pace. Like anything like that, and especially if it's female led at the time, it had oh. been so slow. As, I was gonna say funded the program, but wouldn't let her in as a student. Right. Yeah.
2: They would take her money, but they never regarded her as a colleague.
0: Peer, yeah.
2: And that bothered her. And um, you know, they they and that's the what the whole book is about. They use Harvard and Francis Desler Lee used each other for their purposes, and Harvard was so certain on a payday that they were willing to put up with all her fussiness uh, because they were certain that they were that she was going to leave them millions in her will and she used harvard's um their you know the the whole authority and that whole uh, elite you know uh, their reputation uh to serve her purposes to establish the importance of legal medicine. It had to be at Harvard Medical School because it was it was Harvard Medical School,
0: right? The the authority did exactly. did she leave the millions in her will?
2: Oh hell no! She wrote them out of the will. She told, <laughs> she totally cut them hell out.
0: Yeah. Hell yeah! no. So Bruce, where can people learn more about you, your book? I, I, I,
2: I wish people didn't know more. about oh. me. No, I, I don't know. I I got coming
0: on the show. <laughs>
1: You and Francis Glessner Lee and your inescapable popularity.
2: It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about the subject. And honestly, you know, I feel like, you know, I am I am uh, continuing her mission. Here we are talking about the very subject that was near and dear to her heart, you know, and we are continuing her mission to educate the public and let them know about medical examiners, coroners, and all these things. So, uh, you know, that's all good.
0: And she um, would love us. We're two chicks on a podcast.
2: Very exactly, of course. Uh, She would be digging it. She, I wish she'd have her own podcast. I mean, what a thing! Well, uh, I don't need
0: any competition, but yeah,
2: this is what the
1: death industry looks like now. It is, by and large, women of a certain age. That's right, actually. I'm not like a big proponent of the difference between men and women about things, but there's no one more observant than a woman of a certain age. You
2: get these. That 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 there's something to be said about that and that is absolutely true but there's there uh there for some reason and it's probably a whole different episode for you uh there are forensic science is more popular among women it's a women's topic women buy these books um forensic medicine unlike other medical fields there are more women than men in forensic pathology uh, and, and we have because more. Because
0: we know what you did, <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna prove it.
2: Uh, it's that they it can't get away with anything. That's nope. that's exactly it. But yeah, but that's true. It it, it is true. And more of our medical examiners than women. We have more women than men. It's mm-hmm. there yeah. you go.
0: Well, yeah, so... you know, since the downslide of the twelve-year-old farm boy <laughs> coroner corner. <laughs> and... Uh, all right. Well, Bruce, where can people learn more about the subject and less about you?
2: They, they certainly I the, the book is wonderful. It's available wherever people get their books. It's at the library. It's on Kindle Audio, uh, 18 tiny desks uh, there. Uh, the, if you like the pictures, I got these detail shots, close ups and really cool things and things that were hidden from the public um, on Instagram. It's 18 tiny desks all spelled out, not the digits. But on TikTok, my kids,
0: no.
2: I know they pushed me to do TikTok. We don't do
0: t- even have a TikTok.
2: I, I, I did it on. They, they've been pushing me and pushing me to do it. Daddy, yeah. you got to do, do it. So I did one, and it was it just went bonkers. It just totally went, absolutely went bonkers. And I've got uh, something like twelve thousand followers, and I got one of my. One of my videos to like over 200,000 views, and it's just the wow. same people are eating it up. They people just
0: love, love tiny murders,
2: yeah. Well, they love the nutshells. I mean, it just it, it's just yeah. but the way people engage, they're asking questions, and it's just uh, unlike any other thing, it's just amazing. So, that's that's it. a tick tock at 18 Tiny Best. And you know, I got my own website, com, and they can reach me there and on Facebook and the usual places, and um, wherever here. Yeah. It a
0: riveting interview. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bruce, for coming on and talking to us. It's been awesome.
2: Oh, this has been so much fun. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Thank you so much. Jenna, do you have anything else? I'm just enamored with the whole topic. I didn't know anything going in. Oh, it's,
2: you, you it's fascinating. Do you should absolutely do a part two.
0: You want to come on for part two?
2: Absolutely. I don't okay. know. What could
0: happen. We would love
1: to have you back because there's there's volumes to say about this. There really is.
2: I, I, well, okay. I I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't, wanna, do I, I don't wanna release some news prematurely yet. Uh,
0: do no! Do it. Oh no. no! Do it.
2: No, no. You, there there may be a reason for you to have me back in in the not too distant future.
0: Okay, it, you heard it, it here it, first. Is it filmish related?
2: I, I I'm no. I'm finishing another manuscript.
0: Okay. nice. We'll absolutely have you. No, nobody's listening to us right now. Except for our worldwide audience. Just those guys. between us. We're big in India. Yeah, we are huge in India. India. Like, for real. We are. Well, that's amazing. Congratulations on your secret news.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, until next time, get the book, 18 Tiny Deaths
0: by the one and only Bruce Goldfarb. We're so thankful that you came on, Bruce. And if anybody has any questions for Bruce and you're too shy to reach out to him reach out to us. We're at dead girls talking to you. That's the number two and the letter U at gmail.com. We love to hear from you guys and you can catch us on Instagram. We're on Facebook. I guess now we got to get a TikTok cause old Bruce is showing us up over here, but thank you once more. And thank you to the listeners. If you're looking for any merch, we have got merch, put our faces on your sweaters and your koozies and your notebooks. We are everywhere. Check us out facebook.com once again thank you so much bruce i'm minda i'm jenna and we are Dead girls talking we're done